Welcome to the Ambassadorial Series. I'm Jill Doherty. Probably no Americans have as unique and in-depth perspectives on Russia as United States ambassadors. They arrive at their posts in Moscow often with deep knowledge of the country and its language. They live in Russia. They meet and negotiate with the highest Russian officials. They travel throughout the country, interact with Russian citizens. They not only are eyewitnesses to Russia's history, but actors in that history. In the ambassadorial series, we hear from all the living U.S. ambassadors to modern Russia and to the Soviet Union before it. They recount their personal experiences in Moscow, the people they met, the challenges and even dangers they sometimes faced. And with the benefit of time to ponder these experiences, they tell us how they understand Russia, its relationship with the United States, and the impact that relationship has on the world. We missed the one element of diplomacy that is absolutely critical in balancing some of these very sensitive relationships, and that's a level of connectivity and dialogue that allows both sides to frame the priorities and to get working toward some shared outcomes and solutions. So in that empty environment, uh, Russia and China came together, um, each having different interests in, in, in coming together. John Huntsman was America's ambassador to both Russia and China, two countries that tout the strength of their relationship. But Huntsman says it's a relationship that would not exist if the U.S. had played its diplomatic cards more skillfully. So, Ambassador John Huntsman, thank you very much for being with us. And I think the last time I actually saw you was in Moscow. It was at Spasso House, the beautiful residence of the ambassador there. And it was for a cultural event with your family. It was really wonderful, a lot of Russian guests. And so thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jill. It was a pleasure then and it's a pleasure now. Thanks for bringing your great professionalism to the table. Thank you. Well, today we have kind of a, a broader historical perspective, I think, because what um, in this series we are trying to do is have ambassadors look at the time that they spent in Russia. And some of them have a very long careers. You certainly have a very long diplomatic career. Uh, Russia, China, Singapore, and a lot of experience, two big countries, Russia, China, that are in the center of attention. So um, we're going to try to get to that perspective. And I'm just putting myself back into the time that you arrived uh, in Moscow. And I believe you described it as historically difficult period in bilateral relations. Could you describe what was it like when you arrived? What were your expectations of what I think you'd have to say was a pretty fraught relationship even at that point? And um, do you have any vivid memories from that period? Thank you, Jill. It was, uh, in a sense, uh, managing adversity, if I could just put it in a phrase, managing downside risk. There were some who felt uh, optimistic that we could strike up a new dialogue with Moscow. Uh, I was less sanguine about that possibility uh, just because I've tracked big power relationships and I followed resets and redos by both Republicans and Democrats from administrations past. And, and it studied uh, Vladimir Putin and his style of leadership and uh, 
tried to understand his aspirations for the country, the region, and uh, Russia's place in the world. So I was less sanguine about the ability to strike up maybe new and optimistic lines of communication. And then the events leading up to my arrival in Moscow were, were absolutely terrifying from a diplomatic standpoint. Of course, we had the election meddling in November, the, the run-up to November of 2016. And uh, the assessment by the intelligence community, which was uniform, it's very rare that you get a uniform assessment from the intelligence community because you got so many players who make up that community, was that uh, the Russians were behind it. Uh, and uh, certain elements of the Russian security services. And the evidence was pretty clear. I remember one of the first things I did once I got my security clearances back was to read uh, the consensus by the intelligence community. Uh, so in the aftermath, of course, as you'll remember, Washington responded by booting out about 35 Russian diplomats. This would have been December of 2016. Uh, and, and then the aftermath was into spring and summer of 2017. This was while I was in training, uh, preparing to, to, to ship out to Moscow. Congress came up with a sanctions of package, uh, a package of sanctions that were quite punitive, uh, but I would say appropriate given Russia's role in the election of 2016. That was signed off on by the president. I remember getting a call from the president uh, the morning that Congress voted on this package saying your job just got a whole lot more difficult. And in fact, it did. Well, in the aftermath of that congressional sanctions package, uh, Vladimir Putin announced that he was cutting 755 people from the United States embassy, uh, effectively capping our overall staffing at about 455. So you'd really have to go back, Jill, to 1986, I'm guessing, where in the aftermath of the Gennady Zakharov, uh, Nicholas uh, Donilov affair, the embassy was basically capped at about 251, 252. It was a, it was a devastating hit then as it was um, in the follow-on to 2016 and the sanctions of 2017. So my arrival was literally weeks after that uh, that cut announced by Putin. Uh, and uh, it was a very difficult, very solemn time for the staff in Moscow. Of course, you had all kinds of people who were packing their bags, getting their personal effects organized, the impact on families, on kids in school, uh, on the overall operations of the embassy and our consulates, which we were managing. So that's where it fell to me. So how do you take a much slimmed down staff, slimmed down by 70% if you wanna put it in, in numerical terms and try to keep the same output going for the consumers in Washington and those who rely upon your work, whether it's movement of people, whether it's political reporting, uh, whether it's the commercial side of, uh, of our relationship. There's just so much that goes on between the United States and Russia. And of course, that all had to be reorganized under a much smaller footprint, which was a very, very difficult thing to do. So that's what I walked into uh, uh, early on, which is something that I had not experienced before. I, I had experienced big power relationships, certainly with China, and have spent uh, decades involved in the U.S.-China relationship. And of course, was first exposed to Russia in early visits to the Soviet Union in the, the, the late 1980s, even worked on a joint venture there. So I had a perspective of Russia pre-91, and of course, had followed it in government and business work, had visited there 
and of course found a new reality, at least diplomatically, in 2017 when I arrived. So it was difficult, but what I remember most from that period were the personal aspects within the U.S. mission of how this played out, because I watched some of the finest men and women uh, in diplomacy uh, and in other aspects of international affairs work who had dedicated their lives to Russia, to language, to regional studies, to politics, economics, and history, um, who were being booted out and probably would never have an opportunity to, to return. So for them, it was quite catastrophic. And for the mission, it was something that caused us to reel for weeks, if not months, trying to find the right management structure such that we could basically keep the lights on. Yeah, very difficult challenge. Um, you know, if you kind of back up and look at the policy that seemed to be um, implemented at that period, there are some who say that there are actually three different policies in play with the Trump administration. One was what we heard from President Trump himself, which was we should be able to get along or wouldn't it be nice to be able to get along with Vladimir Putin. Then you had officials in his administration who took in some cases a much harsher view. And then you also had Congress. You mentioned sanctions. Congress doing its thing, um, often very critical and in introducing sanction upon sanction. I want to talk about sanctions later, but just that policy. Do you agree that there actually, in reality, were three different policies? And do, do you agree that the Russians were confused? Or how would you um, describe how the Russians looked at American policy? I think the Russians read us pretty well. Uh, those who I worked with at the top levels of the foreign ministry and beyond, they're professionals. In fact, they're some of the best uh, I've ever worked with from a professional standpoint. They read the United States well. They stay year after year. They understand Congress, the executive branch, even local government to some extent. So I'm not sure they were terribly confused by it, particularly when you experience what I have and what many others have, which is to say it's not uncommon for a newly elected president of, of either party to try to rebalance a difficult relationship. I certainly saw it in China where uh, a newly elected president will try to warm up and to uh, offer uh, an embrace and to look forward to engagements of various kinds. And I think that's been the case in Russia as well. If you look back, at least certainly back to President Clinton, and, and if you were to bring it current, newly elected presidents try to throw a bouquet out uh, to get the relationship on, a, on an optimistic and solid footing. And then the reality of the relationship begins to set in. So in this case, we had uh, the carryover from Russia's invasion of Ukraine back in 2015 and their regional geographic meddling trying to expand or solidify their sense of regional security. And then you overlay that with, of course, the election meddling and, uh, and what we thought to be very bad behavior uh, in other regional conflicts uh, around the world. Uh, no one would have thought that it would be anything other than very difficult uh, at a professional level. And certainly for those of us who were working it on the ground day to day, I found more of a unified uh, approach to dealing with Russia, which is we, we have to address, we have to answer 
uh, on some of these uh, uh, egregious and outrageous policies coming out of Moscow. And we were all unified behind that. The president was unified behind uh, the congressional sanctions, which were extremely punitive uh, sanctions. Uh, and I don't remember a time where the White House or the National Security Council was not in favor of what came later. And it only uh, uh, exacerbated with the poisoning of Sergei Skripal in, uh, in uh, 2017, uh, along with his daughter, Yulia, when then we, along with 29 other countries, uh, uh, worked to kick out Russian intelligence operatives. So we had the first election uh, uh, meddling row, and that was followed up shortly thereafter by, by the Skripal poisoning. Um, and we booted out uh, probably 60 intelligence operatives from the United States, ended up closing two consulates, Seattle and then San Francisco. And of course, the response on top of what we already had the year earlier was 60 more that were booted out of uh, the embassy and the closing of St. Petersburg. So there was no way in this milieu, in this environment, that uh, anything good could come. It was, again, managing adversity and managing downside risk for me almost the entire two years. But all the while, you had to establish a rapport relationships. We had to communicate on things that uh, represented our, our ongoing shared interests, whether that was space or whether it was Syria, uh, Libya, Venezuela, Afghanistan, or just a lot of things that we were uh, in discussions on where we didn't uh, agree, obviously, but we had enough in the way of shared interests to keep us together at the table. So for me, it was really a combination of managing uh, our, our, our shared interests where we had them, which wasn't a, a, a very uh, a fulsome menu of things. And at the same time, trying to manage the degradation of our diplomatic presence, which was really unprecedented. When you look at the election meddling and its aftermath, the Sergei Skripal poisoning and its aftermath, and the effect that it had in terms of personnel and diplomatic properties overall in the U.S.-Russia relationship. So trying to make sense out of a much reduced footprint and ability to do what needs to be done uh, to protect uh, U.S. interests and to get a better understanding of where Russia was in terms of their own decision making and where they were likely headed, that became a very, very difficult task for the much slimmed down staff that we had in Moscow. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned China, and as we, as everyone knows, you were the ambassador to China. Uh, also Singapore. So you have a lot of Asia experience. And I think you're uniquely positioned to uh, help us understand that relationship between Russia and China. Um, but, you know, based on that experience, how would you describe it? What, what is this relationship? Well, it's a, it's a marriage made of convenience uh, based upon shared interests. Uh, it's a marriage that is fueled by an antipathy toward the United States. It's a relationship that should not exist, I would argue, if the United States had played its diplomatic cards a little more adroitly. Um, but we provided a huge opening for, <laughs> for Russia and China to come together. And uh, to my mind, there really was no excuse for that. But Did it, you go into that just a little bit more? Because that really would be interesting. What was wrong with the, uh, the previous policy? Well, it was wave after wave of sanctions with, uh, with inadequate uh, uh, dialogue. 
So sanctions, if they're targeted, if they're focused, if they achieve a foreign policy outcome, uh, uh, is something that uh, I, I believe should be part of your uh, your, your arsenal of weapons uh, as a country. But while you're managing sanctions, you have to have some sort of uh, a thoughtful dialogue that is ongoing, that speaks to the sanctions, that speaks about how ultimately we, we get away from sanctions, which aspects of the relationship need to be focused on. But almost in both cases, both in Russia and China, we've been punitive without the ability to communicate uh, and to connect. And so it's an incomplete kind of relationship. And I think it, it, it therefore begins to drift. And the drift in both cases can become uh, strategically very dangerous. So while both countries are, are punished and sanctioned for the things that are, that are perfectly understandable, uh, and I think absolutely in America's interest, we, we missed the one element of diplomacy that is absolutely critical in balancing some of these very sensitive relationships. And that's a level of connectivity and dialogue that uh, allows both sides to frame the priorities and to get working toward some shared outcomes and solutions. So in, in that empty environment, uh, Russia and China came together, um, each having different interests in, in, in coming together. Uh, certainly uh, in the case of China, uh, which does not have a lot of trust uh, toward Russia. I know that from my decades of experience there. Um, all you have to do is pull up to the the Renmin Da Huitang, the Great Hall of the People, which is right next to Tiananmen Square, which was a gift by the Soviets on the 10th anniversary of their of, uh, of their friendship after liberation in 1949. So this would have been 1959. And the relationship between Russia and China was so strained in the year or two thereafter, 1960, 1961, that the Russians left China and left this building unfinished. It was a Stalin-esque piece of architecture from the bottom all the way to the roof. And there was no roof, of course, because the Russians weren't there long enough to finish it. So the Chinese put a Chinese roof on the Stalinist building. And every time I'd pull up there for meetings, I'd be reminded uh, of the difficulty in that relationship between Russia and China. It was never meant to be, it was never meant to be uh, certainly an easy one. They've got a shared border, probably one of the longest shared borders between any two countries uh, in the world. They had at that time, of course, late 50s, early 60s, uh, uh, an ideological disconnect between Mao's interpretation of Marxism-Leninism and what Khrushchev expected him to follow. So it was a very, very bitter rivalry that took them all the way to almost a nuclear encounter by uh, the late 1960s. So uh, all you have to do is trace back a few decades to see where the Russia-China relationship goes if le left to its own devices. But we somehow gave them reason to come together. Uh, the Chinese, of course, were looking for uh, an energy relationship uh, from the Russians. Uh, they signed big, ambitious contracts. I don't think much of those have come to fruition. And of course, the Russians were looking for legitimacy, uh, being seen as something other than the junior partner in the game of, uh, of superpowers. They were also looking for funding from, uh, from Chinese banks and Chinese sources for their oligarchs and for business expansion and development, which, of course, really didn't happen because of the lack of trust between them. But what I'm most concerned about is the fact that you've got Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin actually meeting together. Their teams are sharing intelligence. 
they're actually uh, started a, two or three years ago uh, engaging in military exercises together, which would be a first. Not that they're integrating or interoperating at all, but you know, they're really watching each other more than anything else. But the fact that they're on the same playing field doing that kind of thing should set off alarm bells in Washington. You know, when um, we, I think we got into sanctions, but just one more point about that. You know, I've talked with a lot of Russians about sanctions, and uh, right now there seems to be the conclusion in Moscow that sanctions will never end. This is going to be a fact of life forever. And so some people say that the Russians interpret that as we might as well do what we were going to do because we would just be punished with more sanctions, ergo onward. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think, is that a, a, a correct analysis of what's going on? Well, I, I think, so I'm all in favor of uh, sanctions that have a specific target, a specific life and a, an intended outcome that is understood by both sides. But when you get into the hundreds, if not thousands of sanctions uh, between two countries targeted toward individuals and entities without fully understanding why, the, why they are there as opposed to just punishment or punitive measures, then you see the market begin to correct in ways that build around sanctions, where black markets are created, where access to capital uh, is, 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 is available through the non-traditional sources and means. And you find new alliances that grow out of that kind of environment, like the one we just talked about between Russia and China. So there are sanctions and sanctions do play a foreign policy role. Uh, and I do believe that without some understanding of why they are there, which gets right back to the importance of dialogue, sanctions plus dialogue really uh, would be the most appropriate approach. And then you do uh, probably run the risk of, uh, of countries engaging in more aud uh, audacious behavior um, because there's nothing to lose at the end of the day. And what will a couple hundred more sanctions do that 1,000 haven't done already? So sanctions with a cause, with a target, with an intended foreign policy purpose, sign me up for that. But when they become watered down and ambiguous and less defined and just part of the landscape. And then, of course, the foreign ministry in Moscow is smart enough to conclude that there probably aren't a lot of people in Congress on Capitol Hill who are going to want to anytime soon stand up and say, OK, time's up. Uh, we ought to we ought to take away these sanctions and get on with a, a more normal uh, bilateral relationship. That isn't exactly a politically <laughs> intelligent thing to do. And, and because of that, we, we are stuck just because it is not a, a politically expedient thing to do to, to lift sanctions. It's very politically expedient to apply sanctions. That'll get an applause line every time you talk about it at a town hall meeting. But you'll get things thrown at you at a town hall meeting if you talk about lifting sanctions. You know, I'm intrigued very much um, by your take on Vladimir Putin. And I was just thinking in China, you have seen, you know, Chinese leaders, historic movements of leaders. And then also in Singapore with Lee Kuan Yew, a, a great leader, um, actually, internationally. Um, so you've had a chance to really watch three men in operation. What's your take on Vladimir Putin? And I know this is almost unfair because it's a, a common question, but um, what would you say, what, what is driving him? Um, what 
Is is there an aim? Does he have a a, stra- a strategic aim in mind for Russia? Jill, I think he's fueled by a sense of inferiority uh, and where Russia finds itself today versus where it was pre-1991. So he was very active, of course, in the intelligence services after finishing at, uh, at uh, uh, college in St. Petersburg. He went on to work for Mayor Sobchak in St. Petersburg, actually doing economic development work before he went on to the security services in Moscow. So it's often been said that Vladimir Putin's worst day was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And he's yearned all the while to recreate that sense of empire. Uh, I think it was a catastrophic event in in his life. Uh, And so he's fueled, therefore, by the Russia that is today versus what was yesterday's Soviet Union. It has half the population. It has half the geographic mass. It has half the economy. It doesn't have the sense of unity, of course, that existed under uh, the old the old system. So I think what drives him is to rebuild empire to ensure that he keeps Europe and NATO weak because there's no way that he can begin to rebuild uh, an empire and at least weaken the nation states around him that would represent the old Soviet geography with a strong NATO and a strong Europe. So therefore he's fixated uh, almost maniacally on, uh, uh, on disrupting events in Europe uh, on engaging in uh, all kinds of policies that will destabilize countries that are fairly weak in Europe and doing what he can to stand in the way of uh, a strong U.S.-NATO uh, relationship. Uh, he's What I find unique about Vladimir Putin is he's been in office for over 20 years. He's seen every head of state come and go. He knows every negotiating style. He brings to the negotiating table Uh, his intelligence and operations background. Uh, And he runs the country with a very small clique of elites, mostly from the security services. When you take defense, when you take two or three of the security services, uh, that's pretty much the decision-making body right there. You might throw in a few oligarchs, but it's a very simple system for him to use as compared and contrasted to the system in Washington, which has endless checks and balances and, of course, is transparent and and open to the media. So he's able to meddle in ways that no one can compete with. He does it on the cheap. He does it with a very simple plan. He doesn't need much in the way of sign-offs to get it done. And he's able to come into countries, let's just say Venezuela, for example, just to take one in our hemisphere, with a a menu of things that he can provide, whether it is uh, intelligence support, whether it's oil, whether it's logistic support, whether it's funding for different things, And and he can operate in ways that I've seen no other head of state uh, be able to operate. He is singular and unique in his power. And Russia today is where it is uh, uh, and absolutely reflective of one man, and and that is Vladimir Putin. And I would argue that the prevailing ideology uh, in Russia is Putinism. And it's uh, it's heavy on Russian Orthodox Church. It's uh, heavy on being a uh, proud Slavic, uh, and it's, uh, it, it's heavy on supporting and standing behind Vladimir Putin and his desire to want to recreate greatness in, uh, in a lost empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a sense of frustration, I think, among some Russians 
um, when do you get to the side that should be a natural business? And that's your family comes from that background, public service, certainly, but a lot of, you know, business and experience in business. I have noted over the years, President Putin is always coming up with new ideas, you know, Russia projects, build the economy, uh, make it a modern country with the IT industry, etc. I'd be interested in your perspective on that as well. Is it that he's just kind of uh, talking a good game, but he's never going to do it? Or how do you square what happened to him in the beginning when he was doing some economic reform before you came, but 20 years ago, uh, he was doing some economic reform, then he stopped. And now it would be very hard to find any evidence of true reform. So I guess my question boils down to how do you evaluate his um, quandary as a person who needs to develop business in Russia, talks a good game, but he's not doing it? Well, it's a great uh, question. And, and you could spend the, the rest of the day uh, talking about uh, economic development, uh, say, for example, in the early 90s, when there was a brief moment of euphoria uh, under Yeltsin. I know because I was part of that, uh, working on a joint venture in Moscow. And then the reality of Putin taking over. And what's also interesting, and we ought to note this, Jill, is that we and the rest of the world did not see the collapse of an uh, empire coming, nor did we see the rise of Vladimir Putin. Um, and he's been there for over 20 years. So what does that say about our own analytic uh, capabilities and, uh, and where we might have some deficiencies and holes? But there was a moment of euphoria when there was capital and brain power moving into Russia in the, in the 90s. That came to an end when I think Putin argued that too much openness uh, and giving away too much to the outside was going to threaten their, their hold on power. And that all came to an end. Um, meanwhile, you had a lot of friends of his uh, who were buying state assets uh, at pennies on the dollars, uh, and they became billionaires overnight. And that remains the cadre of oligarchs that he turns to for advice and who actually have a seat at, uh, at the table of power. So we talked about Vladimir Putin versus Lee Kuan Yew versus Xi Jinping. So Lee Kuan Yew's approach was just the opposite. If we don't have policies that bring in brain power and capital and technology, we will lose. Uh, we're surrounded by sometimes an, uh, unstable countries. Uh, we're a small uh, island population with no natural resources. We have to rely on inputs from the rest of the world. If we can't manage that, we're done. Uh, and, and so he's he's managed that openness, even with sort of uh, uh, an authoritarian hold on, on political power now with his son, Li Shenlong, who's been a long time prime minister. And in China, I think China looked very closely at the uh, Singapore model. And of course, they looked at the Russia model uh, long about 1991 and what happened internally to cause that failure, that implosion. And then since Russia's economic journey, which has not been a happy one. And I think China learned a lot of lessons from that. And I think their takeaway was at the end of the day, we have to have enough capital technology and brain power associated with our economic development. But in the end, we must own these national winners so that we have our own Google, our own Apple, our own Disney, our own AT&T, you name it. And uh, that has taken them more toward uh, a much different economic model today than they had uh, just a few years ago. What is disconcerting for 
Vladimir Putin. And what I used to comment on regularly is here's a country of 150 million people is spread out across 11 time zones uh, from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok. Brilliant, beautiful, capable people, some of the great entrepreneurs uh, of the world. And as I used to tell some very senior people in Moscow, thank you for giving us a few Sergeys in the United States because they've added enormously to our own economic well-being. But what you find in today's Russia, based upon the policies of Vladimir Putin, which have not been friendly to economic development, with the exception of those immediately around him, is that you have brain power now moving outward. So the young, tech-savvy, smart entrepreneurs are leaving. They're going to Europe, they're going to Israel, they're going to the United States. And moreover, when you look at the capital outflows, I think that most people would be surprised at the, the, the dollars that uh, are the rubles that are leaving Russia uh, in pursuit of investments elsewhere. So these are exactly the things that you don't want to have happen if you want a strong, stable 21st century uh, economy. Yet that's exactly what's happening uh, in today's Russia. So as that happens, you really look more and more, as Putin, I sh I'm sure, does at your balance sheet. And your balance sheet says you have a lot of oil and gas which is most of the balance sheet. And you've got some capacity to sell arms uh, on the open market, even on the black market, that brings in revenue. But in terms of economic diversification, like you've seen in China, for example, where there's been enormous economic diversification, uh, you don't see that in Russia. And this bodes, I think, very poorly for the future uh, of the Russian people. And I think it's in large part why Putin's numbers continue to creep downward because people get that in Russia. They get the fact that they're on the losing end of economic development. And the winning aspects of economic development in Russia are going into the pockets of just a handful of the oligarch elites. Uh, and that that's called corruption. Uh, and I think most people are onto it. And hence you have the rise of, uh, of Navalny and uh, the many tens of thousands, if not millions across the country who are, who are very open and sympathetic to what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. you, you were the ambassador from 2017 to 2019. And I'm just thinking in the midst of all these diplomatic problems with staff, etc. Did you have a chance to travel outside of Moscow, St. Petersburg, the big cities, and get across that gigantic nation? I did. And uh, I traveled from end to end, mm -hmm. and, uh, and top to bottom. And uh, never cease to be uh, amazed by the beauty and the brilliance of the Russian people. Uh, I was captivated by Russian literature and history and music. I mean, I've heard Tchaikovsky for years from my daughter, who's a piano player. And I've read Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn in the past, but it takes on new meaning when you're actually there uh, in the areas where they actually lived or may have suffered at one point. The country is just so magical in so many ways, and, and I really do miss it uh, in, in, in deeply profound ways. Uh, the government, of course, is holding it back. It's holding back the aspirations and the power of its very people, who I think are some of the smartest, most uh, uh, ingenious and creative people on the face of the earth. And there's so much in the way of human power that once unleashed, and I think that's what gave the world a sense of optimism in the post 91 period for at least a part of the decade of the 1990s is, wow, 
This is a country that no one was paying, could not pay any attention to under, under communism that now is freeing up its natural capacity and people liked what they saw. And I think the Russian people liked the ability to engage with the outside world when it did last. And so there's a, there's a sense of serious suppression of the aspirations, the yearnings, uh, and, uh, and, and the talents of the Russian people. And I find that terribly unfortunate. Yeah. I remember uh, one encounter that I had in a town that you might have gone to. It's right on the border of Russia and China called Blagovishinsk. It's right on that. It's like the river divides China and Russia. And talking to a Russian businessman, and uh, he, he said with a kind of a big grin on his face, Moscow is very far away. <laughs> so his reality was, you know, the workers on the other side of this river from China who would come over and do construction and, uh, and not Moscow, which was thousands of miles away. And I think that that reminds me, you reminded me of that because he had a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. He was really a, a doer, but he seemed very frustrated because in order to do what he wanted to do, he literally had to import Chinese workers, which mm -hmm. he didn't want to do. He wanted to use his own Russians. So anyway, but, um, oh, so, please go ahead. No, I just, I was reflecting on your comments, which, and I was thinking about how porous that border has become between Russia and China. Uh, the, the, in fact, a natural marketplace has been created uh, between China and Russia, people crossing the border, people trading. It's not regulated, of course, so you, <laughs> it's hard to know what, what, what passes the border. But, you know, in a state where people are going to be entrepreneurs, where they're going to build things, where they're going to want to trade, that activity is going to go on. You may as well harness it and use it for good and build it into a legitimate marketplace. Because I would find corners of Russia where these markets had been created, where borders have become porous and people just started trading on their own without any sense of direction from an overall economic development strategy. You know, in the beginning of our conversation, you were talking about when you arrived and you were the ambassador from 2017 to 2019, so two years. Uh, is there anything in the positive column on this? Do you feel that you accomplished something? You know, Jill, it's a very uh, good question. And I think about that a lot. And I also reflect back on a very difficult time in China. And my, my answer is always, uh, I'll let the diplomatic historians make sense of it because a lot of things that you do and a lot of the programs that are done are not necessarily apparent at that moment in, in time. That's just the nature of diplomacy. Um, it's, it's slow, it's incremental. You build and make decisions for the long term. Um, but listen, for me, it was managing adversity. It was managing the downside risk in the relationship. Uh, and, and we kept lines of communication open at the highest levels of uh, the Russian government. Um, we protected uh, our diplomats uh, and all of those affiliated with the embassy. Uh, we transitioned hundreds of people out uh, who had catastrophic events befall them with the PNGs that occurred, unprecedented in history. So if you look at all of that and you say, okay, it could have been worse. Uh, it could have been truly catastrophic on a number of fronts, but we kind of held the, the foundational framework together 
such that we could not only uh, deal with the people side, the management side, the bilateral relationship side, but we were also able to get out and talk to people and engage in social media that I know impacted many people who otherwise wouldn't have had access to it. I was able to get around and see groups of Russians to give speeches, to get in different forms of media that I think was important. Uh, but it was, it was a difficult, difficult couple of years, and I'm not sure that we're going to see that again anytime soon, just for a number of reasons, one event after another. But I, I'm proud of what we were able to do. I'm, I'm particularly proud of the professional staff um, at Embassy Moscow and our, our consulates uh, that survived. Uh, e. Katrenberg, of course, and Vladivostok. We had to close St. Pete's, uh, which, of course, was a very historic property mm -hmm. and one that many Americans had uh, experienced on, on their trips to, uh, to Russia. Uh, the professional staff were just absolutely outstanding, and uh, I know what a blow it was to them. For me, I, I knew my time would be up eventually. For them, they were in it for the long term as professionals. But we all pulled together as an embassy family and, and made the most of it, and we were able to get many of our professionals on their feet uh, as Russia watchers in, uh, in countries in the region, some of our best and brightest, and that gave me great joy to see some of our great men and women who really are the best in the business. They were able to get through it all, uh, rebalance and, uh, and find really important positions doing similar work uh, on the periphery. So that was good. Mm -hmm. Is there advice that you would give to future American uh, ambassadors or diplomats dealing with Russia? We have to deal with Russia in, in a, in, in circumstances that are less politically charged. So having a long-term strategy is always a good thing. We don't do strategy very well as a country. And sometimes when we have tried, the strategies are short-lived. We're up against countries like Russia and China, which I would consider to be the two great, great powers in the world today. Uh, they develop strategies, they stick to them. They've got very few people who are involved in developing and executing strategies vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the bilateral relationship with the United States, and they're very good at it. And we, in turn, are very episodic and up and down and inconsistent. And as it relates to both Russia and China, we need to bring to bear a sense of consistency. We need a better understanding of what our national interests are. And we need an overlay that allows us to articulate and put forward uh, our traditional American values. Because although they're not liked in Moscow and they're not liked in Beijing, I think they still represent the yearnings and the aspirations of so many people in both countries. And that is to have a, a greater say, a greater ability to participate in the political affairs of their countries, a greater respect for human rights, um, so many more things that need to be part of our agenda. And oftentimes it's crowded out in the cacophony, the yelling and screaming that goes on based on the politics of the bilateral relationship. So a strategy plus a level of strategic dialogue that we are committed to. And even when times are tough, what I used to reflect on and tell members of Congress and others is even in the very difficult days of the Soviet Union, we were able to carry on meaningful dialogues. Uh, specifically, I would point out an arms control 
where now the Biden administration has made, I think, the correct call to extend the New START agreement uh, another few years, uh, which is probably the most important relationship, uh, the most important issue we have between the United States and Russia. So a strategy, an ability to connect, to carry on important, delicate, but strategic discussions in a consistent way that keep us at the table. We've been estranged for too long. And the very thought of doing what we did in the Soviet days is almost anathema. It's almost like, you know, you're, you're a Russia apologist if you even make such a recommendation. But this is just simple diplomacy as it's been carried out for hundreds of years. You can't rely on technology and algorithms uh, to solve your diplomatic problems. That takes people. There's a human element and a human dimension that relies on relationship building, understand, understanding one another, and staying consistently at the table, even when you're not agreeing to a whole lot. You know, that reminds me, and perhaps this is the last question, you're summing this up so well, the um, focus on diplomacy and the importance of sustained dialogue. And I actually found a quote from you. I'll read it. You said, no set or restart with Russia is going to help just a clear understanding of our interests and values and a practical framework for sustained dialogue. And I was thinking of a person whom you may know, and I had the uh, luck and honor to meet Harold Saunders, Hal Saunders, who was the uh, Assistant Secretary of State, who actually created a system for sustained dialogue. And part of that was not only talking, but listening. So I, I think a lot of us will take uh, encouragement from your words about that, the process, and, and that we do not know always where it's going to lead, but in the midst of it, you have to do it. Hal, Hal Saunders uh, was a legend, and uh, several in his generation were mentors to me uh, coming up. And they understood diplomacy from the post-World War II period, um, how we rebuild the world, how we engage with our rivals and our adversaries. And it's traditional diplomacy as envisioned hundreds of years ago when diplomacy was created along with the advent of the nation state. And it, it's no different today. Uh, we sometimes let tweets and social media get in the way and political speeches that are given, uh, driven by emotion and passion stand in the way of uh, uh, our, our dialogues, but we need to remember that the work of diplomats is extremely important. If, if diplomacy fails, heaven forbid, war then becomes an option. And that should never be the case. You should never be in a situation where diplomacy has failed. It means we have not been creative or strategic enough or engaged enough in our dialogues around issues that really need to be resolved. And uh, shame on us, but we've gone way too many years without simple aspects of diplomatic engagement uh, playing out in ways that you don't need to agree on everything. You don't need to come up with, uh, with, with sound bites and smiling photo ops in the aftermath, but you do need to stay consistently engaged for purposes of understanding one another and confidence building and having a broader understanding of where the relationship wants to go. And we unfortunately have failed at some of those basic elements. Well, Ambassador John Huntsman, thank you very much for reminding us of that 
And it was an inspiring talk, even though I think we began with some a very difficult job that you had when you arrived in Moscow. But thank you very much for this interview. Thank you, Jill. Great pleasure to be with you and keep up the good work. Major support for the Ambassadorial Series was provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York. The Ambassadorial Series is a product of the Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. The Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies, or MIR, promotes a nuanced and clear-eyed understanding of contemporary Russia and U.S.-Russia relations. The executive producer of the Ambassadorial Series is Anna Vasilyeva. Jill Doherty is the associate producer and host. Our series is produced by Jarlath McGuckin. Robert Legvold was a consultant on the series. Our audio engineer is Floyd Yarmouth at Rock House. The Ambassadorial Series is dedicated to the memory of the 12th president of Carnegie Corporation of New York, Dr. Vartan Gregorian, a visionary and an ardent supporter of international dialogue and diplomacy. Thank you for listening.